gentlemen. Hello again. We're back. We're back. Okay. So we're going to kick off set two. We've got some more really good writers for you. The first writer we've got is Marianne Kavanagh. She's worked as an editor and writer on a number of magazines and newspapers, including Mary Claire and The Telegraph. She's written four novels. The first two were romantic comedies that sold all over the world. The third, Should You Ask Me, is Historical Crime. And the fourth, Disturbance, published by Hodder and Stoughton next March, is crime and psychological drama about a lonely woman driven to the edge by rejection and betrayal. Marianne has lived in London for years, drifting steadily towards southwards via the elephant. Loughborough Junction and Herne Hill. She now lives in East Dulwich. So, can we welcome Marianne? Okay. Hello, everyone. It's lovely to be here. You're a wonderful audience. I've been listening to you cheering everyone else. Um, I'm reading from Disturbance, which is my fourth novel. Uh, it's about Sarah, who lives with her bad-tempered workaholic husband and two sons in a large and isolated house. Uh, Mike has just done his back-in, so he's working from home, which is causing quite a few problems. Sarah has had to give up her job to look after him and to keep their business afloat. She's just employed a student called Katie to walk their dog. And I'm just going to pick up the story from where Mike has met Katie for the first time. Mike fixed Katie with a heavy-lidded stare. So how old are you? 18. Mike said, you remind me of someone. Katie looked panicked. Mike swiveled round. His eyes were bloodshot and unfocused. Don't you think so, Sarah? Who does she remind you of? I don't know. Yes, you do. You know exactly who she reminds me of. One of James's friends, maybe. He mimicked her, making her voice sound unpleasantly high and whiny. One of James's friends. It, it's late, Mike. We mustn't keep her. It's time for Katie to go home. There was a small silence. Then Mike threw back his head and laughed. The sound reverberated round the room. Sarah caught up with Katie by the front door. Don't take any notice of him. Why was he laughing? I've got no idea. It, it's what happens when you drink too much. Katie nodded, but still hesitated. Sarah made her voice calm. Don't give it another thought. He was rambling. He'll have forgotten all about it in the morning. After Katie had gone and Sarah had rushed round in a whirlwind of activity because everything had been so delayed, they had supper. Mike had lapsed into a kind of brooding silence and concentrated on shoveling mashed potato and chicken stew into his mouth. Once, when Sarah looked up, she saw James staring at his father with an air of puzzled distaste, as if the family meal had been interrupted by a random stranger who'd wandered in off the street 
and hadn't yet been asked to leave. Later that evening, Sarah came back into the great glass extension to find Mike sitting at the table in the dark. She felt a small tug of alarm. He had his back to her, a hulk of shadow facing the black void of the garden. She said, can I put the lights on? When he didn't reply, she turned on the lamp by the shelves, a gentle illumination that no one could object to. She tried not to look at him too closely, but she could see that he had slumped forwards and that his hands were still nursing a glass of whiskey. Do you want a cup of tea? Still, he said nothing. At the sink, she filled the kettle. The black night pressed down on the glass above, making her feel small and insignificant. When she couldn't waste any more time wiping clean surfaces and rearranging mugs in the dishwasher, she made the tea and brought it back to the table. He said, as if they'd been in the middle of a conversation, she's pretty, isn't she? Her heart sank. Trusting. Innocent. Sarah was unwilling to sit down, but there didn't seem to be any other option. She lowered herself to the edge of the chair, ready to move quickly if the mood turned ugly. Works hard, too. Turns up twice a day, regular as clockwork. Takes the bloody dog out. His voice was harsh, like iron scraping on stone. Reliable. Honest. Loyal. She raised her eyes to his face. I give it six months. She kept her voice light and casual, as if they were discussing something inconsequential. I hope she stays longer than that. He gave her a hard stare, as if she were being deliberately stupid. You'll tell her to go. Of course I won't. You will, because that's what you do. You'll pick an argument and say it's her fault. It was such a reversal of reality that she was silenced. Mike looked at her with cold contempt. You'll fall out with her, because you fall out with everyone in the end. No one's ever good enough, are they, Sarah? No one ever quite meets your exacting standards. For a moment, her head was full of bitter retorts. It was tempting to put the blame where it really belonged. But looking at the flushed, drunken face of her belligerent husband, she thought it was probably better not to reply. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you, Marianne. Now, our next author is Sophie Jai. Sophie was born and raised in Trinidad and grew up in Toronto. In 2017, she was selected as an emerging writer for Canada's Festival of Literary Diversity. She is the artist in residence at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies and a book reviver for Words of Colour. Her debut novel, Wildfires was the, was the winner of the 2019 Good Literary Agency and Borough Press competition and will be published in spring 2021. So can we welcome Sophie?
Hello. This is the first chapter of the book. The story of my family is one of potholes and cracks that I've tried to fill over the years for no reason other than my own need to neatly pen a narrative, a beginning, middle, and an end, a sequential flow of things happening to my relatives over the course of time, so I cannot deny how I came to be, why I am the way that I am. When I am sitting, bosomed in a chair with an unturned book in my hand, gazing out my London flat, when I am drinking soda in a cafe and two lovers braided arm in arm catch my eye, when I am in the late night grocery store and a group of people my age bustle in and out of comfortable jester, or when finally, in the company of someone I should be enjoying, that my only wish is to flee to somewhere warm and alone, I look to my past that first provided me these early solitary linings. My home within a house and my home within my mother. I thumb through old family photographs and try to decipher the sideway glances in them, the two people out of nine not smiling. Fine-tune my hearing to the after-dark whispers in the house we all grew up in, long after the lights have been turned off. Read into the swollen silence after someone enters a room and another soon exits. Forget about what happened the night before. It never happened. This is how my family talks. My attempts to fill in the gaps then are forced and eager, overreaching into past and present, blurring fact and fiction. Like my uncle, I have become the storyteller. I too have begun to narrate life in third person as if already dead. I am outside of my body all the time. I travel atop the shoulders of everyone who has lived in the Florence Street house, see the bones of their feet and the arcs of their backs wear brittle as I walk with them, years and years and years before I was born, in an effort to decode us. What my Auntie Ronnie is really seeing when she sits in front of the television for 14 hours a day. Why my sister Cecilia can only be in the presence of our family for 30 minutes at a time before quietly slipping away. Why my Auntie Sangeetha's breath smells like rubbing alcohol more often than not, and if she doesn't know, we can all smell it. Why a grainy picture of the little cousin I never knew, his body an image and the glint in his eye, forever encapsulated at seven years old, sits atop our mantle, but his name is never said. Why Brioni, my older sister who still lives at home at 34 years old, always adorns herself with expensive things, sometimes with the price tag still attached, but never bothers to dye her grays, conceal her blemishes, explain her red eyes. Why my mother, Leela, is an over levitating orb of influence, the tenacity of her single motherhood trespassing into other realms of life where there is no need for it, and if she knows the power she exerts over all of us. Why we never tried to help Chevy. Of these things I know, yet cannot confirm, and thus do not know, I try to, I try to put to shape and amass of my family's stories, a bibliography of reference and reason, genetics and geography, so that I may run my fingers across its lines and structure and know this palpable thing. Thank you. Thank you, Sophie. Okay, so our next author is Ruby Cowling. Ruby was born in Bradford and lives in London. Her short fiction has won awards, including the White Review Short Story Prize and the London Short Story Prize. Publication credits include Lighthouse, The Lonely Crowd, Wasafiri, sounds like Rastafaro, uh, the, the, the Galley Beggar, Press Singles Club, and numerous print anthologies. Her collection, This Paradise, 
described by the TLS as admirably ambitious, by the Spectator as beautiful and highly original, and by Melexia magazine as truly phenomenal, was published by Boiler House Press in April 2019. So let's welcome Ruby Cowling. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, this is my book. It's called This Paradise. And as you probably worked out from that, it's a short story collection, which is so niche. Um, but cool, but cool niche. Um, I've got a few things to say about it, and then I'll read a really short extract. Um, it's my first book, so that's incredibly exciting. It was published this April by Boiler House Press, who are a really super small press um, the, who operate out of UEA. And if anyone wants to talk to me about small press publishing and my experience of it, which has been fantastic, I'm happy to talk about it. I'll probably talk for too long about it if you ask me questions. Um, now, in the book, there are 11 stories. Uh, they're quite varied in terms of length and style, and I get quite experimental somewhere in some places. Um, I do funny things on the page. Some of them I can't read out because they're two voices speaking at once. Um, and they can be speculative. Um, they're often concerned with how we live now. Um, so I'm interested in technology, society, governments, big corporations, and how it feels to be living through a time of really rapid change. Um, and not to mention the looming climate apocalypse, which features. Um, I never consciously themed this book, uh, which made it really difficult to get published. Uh, it took about four years to get this published after my agent started to submit it around. So if you're on submission and it's taking a while, <laughs> it's don't give up because it can take a long time. Um, but there's a sort of theme has accidentally or subconsciously emerged, which is um, kind of characters fleeing towards places or situations that they hope might be better than where they are now. Um, though they're often trying to outrun their own nature or to deny the undeniable. So whether they actually can get to somewhere better is not always sure. But it's also really funny and it's hopeful. So it's not like just doom all the way through. Uh, like um, in the introduction, uh, I've, I've had some really amazing reviews, and that's thanks to the publisher, really, who's been able to get that reach for me in terms of reviews. And again, if you want to talk to me about that experience, I'm happy to answer questions. Um, okay, anyway, I'm just going to read from the beginning of one of the stories, which is one of the slightly more speculative ones. Um, it's open to and had many interpretations, and it's called On Day 21. Nineteen days of rain, unprecedented, they said, and I could hardly tell it was morning. E, my youngest, was screaming. She'd had me up for four hours the previous night, so I switched her off, laid her on the bed, and gently closed the door, the silence a soft blanket around me. C and D were sitting on the floor of the living room in a junk of bright items, lost together in their intricate exchange of small powers and pleasures. The rain had kept us in, sandwiched between the flats above and below, and the weather lay so low that the window showed only the canal, slate grey, slopping onto the towpath. I sat and started folding a heap of clothes warm from the tumble dryer. 
the heap shrank, and the folded pile grew. I was running out of these neat, methodical tasks, so I took my time. Dee threw a rampaging dinosaur at sea, but it missed him and bounced off the leg of the tea table on which rested my laptop. The machine woke with a surprised whirr. It had slept through the night, and for the first time in two weeks, I'd managed to leave it alone all morning. A pair of half-folded corduroys hung from my paused hands as the screen grew keen. It was rich with tiny stars and hearts and numbered dots and exclamation marks. Notifications can't be ignored. Each one is like a bullet. I mean, a bullet that would come out of a gun, not a bullet in a bulleted list, although these seem to be related in terms of urgency. You have to deal with them, or they nag at you. You have to deal with them, or they might smash through your body. My legs stood me up, and I went over to sit at my laptop. Some time passed. C and D started pulling at my jeans. Their pleasant babble soured to whining, and at that moment the wind spat a great hard gobful of rain at the window. A sharp breath went out of my nostrils, and I reached down and switched them both off. The switch was my secret. I told myself I wouldn't resort to it so much, especially with E, who was already small for her age and such a lovely milk-scented little thing, though so were the other two, don't get me wrong, they were the sun in my sky. But the minutes of my days were long and difficult, full of complexity and murk, and the switch was a way to get through. It was a way to sharpen the edges of life, to know where and who I was when things got fuzzy. It cleaned, it freshened, what helped me wasn't the switching off as such, it was the fact of the switch itself existing. I'd come to rely on it. And now, for the first time, I'd used the switch on all three children at once. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. That was lovely. Uh, thank you very much. So our final author of this set will be Nick Cox. Nick um, has worked at Edinburgh Fringe and London Theatres. He writes and performs words and music. His forthcoming novel, Liberty, pitches gratification against morality and is the thinking man's answer to Islamophobia. So give it up for Nick. Thank you. Liberty has said pitches our uh, immediate gratification against our need for deeper fulfillment. It's seen through the eyes of the hero Giles Screed, who is a successful author who has lost his muse. And he's filling the gap in his muse with sensual pleasures. The younger generation is, appears in the form of his 18-year-old daughter, Imogen, who is an idealist, perhaps too much of an idealist, if uh, that's possible. Imogen has recently fallen for a fellow student of hers, an Iraqi refugee whose name is Tell. And the scene takes place in Imogen's loft-style apartment 
in East London where she and Tell are getting it on. This is from a chapter called Dalston Love. Tell stood with his legs apart and his feet firmly on the floor. His muscles were tensing. He leant forwards so that his arms could cradle the full weight of Imogen's naked body. Like that, he could easily lift her up and down on his cock. And since she'd calmed down a little, they'd found a beautifully sexy rhythm. She knew that she didn't have to speed up to make him come. In fact, speeding up would end up making it last longer because he would get overheated and she would get overheated and they would have another break and then they would start again, again. Now she was ready for him to come and she didn't want any more breaks. They'd plateaued plenty. She'd enjoyed the journey and how each time it was still getting better, even though it was already fantastic. And the warmth and the sensuousness and the orgasms were thunderous and she satisfied him, which made her come all the more so. So she just rocked with his rhythm and her legs clung to his thighs loosely to keep the swing in her bounce, that delicious swing bounce, the sweat dripping from them both. And he was strong, he held her through the heat and he looked at her now in her eyes and she saw that his eyes were wavering and she knew what that meant and it gave her the urge to go crazy. But she held it down, letting him bounce her sexy and steady, not racing ahead, not slowing down. And the music knew what they were doing and it was with them, taking them higher, higher and the bass kicked in and the hi-hat flicked on and there was that tingling no return now. They were headed for the cliff. The cliff. Oh, they were going to drive it into the fucking sky. With it, he, she felt his whole body tensing and his legs bouncing her weight back up. There was no return. Ha, ha, here it comes, here it comes. Ha, 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 ha. And then, and then she went crazy because she couldn't hold it down any longer. And she saw through her water eyes and the haze between them that hell had it tell had his head held back and his whole body was tensing, his muscles tensing beneath her. And <laughs> getting it wrong. It's too sexy for my own being. And <laughs> and it's fucking cock welling up inside her. And, 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 and. Slam. He held her down and then up and then down. And he couldn't, she couldn't stop the rhythm. She kept squirming around in circles. She squirmed when he held her up. And then she squirmed when he held her down. She kept pushing them. Pushing each wave as it came through. Pushing each crashing wave. Each booming pulse from the heavens. Riding it. Riding each pulse as it came through. Ah, and then another pulse. And then the pulses gave way to the rhythmic shaking. And then came dawning that they were drenched in sweat. And the lights returned. And the music came back. How loud it was. And then the breathing, sighing. Ah, and him holding her. Holding her in her ecstasy. Holding her exquisitely. Holding her just how she liked. Holding her without letting go. She knew that she had said it once before, 
But she wasn't going to say it again until he had said it. Saying it once unreciprocated, that was okay. She'd been brave. Saying it out loud, that helped it come true. She was certain. Expressing love for another, openly, honestly, fearlessly. That helped the other person reach for the love within themselves and then together they could build their love. But she was sensitive. And she knew that although she gave her love unconditionally, if she said it again and he said nothing, and she would lean over the abyss and fall forwards and that fall might never end. Or most likely it would end but in a flood of tears, with him holding her and her tearing herself away, thin strands of hair stuck to her face and her skin red and puffy. And either she would break his hold over her and run to the bathroom and lock the door with him quietly sitting outside and her whining that there was nothing wrong until she was too tired to resist the persistent call of her own needs. Or he would hold her too tight for her to break free. And that she would burst into tears in his arms anyway. And each of them would know exactly why she was crying. But nothing would be said or resolved. And she would feel empty and hollowed out inside. And despite their bodies being together, despair would surround them. I love you, said Tell. Warm orange light washed over her. To share our love, to conquer with our love, to let the whole sad, mixed-up world know about it. That's what lovers have to do. We have to be bold, stand up for what is right, and that means complaining when the world is wrong, but it also means singing from the rooftops when we're right and the world needs to know it. She slid the glass aside and grasped the railing. Tell frowned. Was she, she going to jump? She was hazy and wild. She might fall. But before he could rise from the bed, she threw her head backwards. And then as if she was putting all the other humans straight about their emotions, she leaned forwards into the air outside and yelled, I'm in love. She wailed on into the night, cackling, shrieking. Then she turned to tell, took both his hands, looked in his eyes and said, let's go out. Thank you. That was 